Thank you. And thank you for the invitation to speak today. Of course, I'm speaking on Father Michael Sherwin's topic, but he'll uh, correct me, I'm sure. Now, Thomas has many writings on charity as well as on use, but he really does not make any direct question on the conformity between these two. Now, Father Sherwin noted some similarities, and that's what I'm going to try to do is draw some threads from Thomas's writings. These come specifically, I would say most prominently, from his discussion on the precepts of charity, both in the Summa Theologiae and De Veritate. But precept of charity introduces a paradox already raised in one of the questions, which seems to favor more of a contradiction between use and charity rather than conformity. A precept is a command. It implies a do, thus indicating something of use. Charity implies a free giving of one's love to another. Therefore, it would seem that one should not be commanded to love one's neighbor. For if he is, then the command, very command of love as a do would negate the freedom required of true love. Now, my paper will begin with a few fundamental points, few initial points on some, as I say, some threads of a connection between use and charity. I'll then return to this paradox of the precepts. I will conclude, however, with my main thesis, that the fullness of Thomas's teaching on the conformity of use and charity includes mention of the virtue of epikeia as a perfection of justice and the gift of wisdom related to charity. Here again, I have to weave together even finer threads from Thomas's writing, but that this conformity of use and charity reaches its perfection when it rises to a level of co-natural judgment guided by divine law. Now, my first point, as I note, is to lay out a few principles. Many of these on use, I believe, have already been established, with use being the proper object of justice. I will add just a couple points in this initial section before I move forward more to the precepts and then the paradox. Um, first, a distinction that Thomas makes between use, simply as the object specifying a just act, as distinct from the virtue or habitus of justice which perfects the will. This distinction allows one to distinguish a just or unjust man or woman from his or her unjust or just action. I may perform an unjust action which does not establish due proportion. But this is insufficient for determining whether I myself am unjust. For example, I may intend to render use to a poor man. Without knowing he is a Jew, I offer him my olive and prosciutto sandwich. My act lacks proportion due to this particular man and does not properly establish use but my will is still properly ordered. I am just or righteous. But vice versa, one may give the other his due with due proportion and not possess the virtue of justice. Same example, I may give a poor man my olive and prosciutto sandwich because I don't like olives. 
My action fulfills the material element of use since I render to the poor the food that he needs. But my will remains disordered because I would not give him the sandwich if I did like olives. <clears throat> my act may be properly called just, but I may still be unjust and unrighteous. Another simple point I would just address before moving from these basic principles of use in itself um, would be something of even a conclusion. And again, this has been drawn for, out many times in the previous talks. And I would say simply that Thomas does not sacrifice the subjective notion of use as right to the objective use as right and due. He upholds use as demanding that the other receive that which belongs to him and not to another, that which is his due. And that the just man renders to the other this due, giving him what is properly his, even his rights. But neither does Thomas sacrifice the objective to the subjective. Use as right involves the full complexity of establishing equality, due, and proportion between individuals. As I say, I'm assuming a great deal that's already been presented, so just those fine points as to use as the object of justice. What about charity? Again, a few preliminary points. First of all, we have to set aside any false impressions arising from simplistic definitions. Charity is identified with a broader and more general term of love. And here we run into the same situation of some problems in the complexity of the terms use and lex that other speakers have already addressed. There's confusion when either term is indifferently applied to the particular. The problem here is one of language. We use love in many languages to identify a wide spectrum of affections and desires of rational beings for other humans, for animals, and even inanimate objects. To maintain clarity as to human love, we often resort to the Greek distinctions of agape, Storge, Bilia, Bilelautia, and also Eros, and our focus here is on agape. This pagan term, however, can only be identified with charity, understood as the highest form of human love, as a natural perfection. Because for the pagans, we are not speaking of grace. Man loves the other selflessly, but he lacks grace with this human, with the pagan agape. And for this reason, Thomas will specify that caritas is a certain perfection of amore, of love. He says, though charity is love, not every love is charity. We also must further distinguish the theological virtue of charity from benevolent acts of kindness by so-called charitable individuals or organizations toward the poor and the needy of society. Since just acts do not necessarily imply that the agent performing them is just, so too with charity. An act may be identified as charitable insofar as it includes external benefit to one's neighbor, but the agent may not necessarily arrive at the level of caritas, of perfect love. Now, Thomas describes perfect love as friendship of man for God. Such a friendship is impossible by a merely human act of the will. 
This charity is in habitual form, super added to the natural power, super added to the will. But this super added grace implies, though it implies a movement of the will by the Holy Spirit, the will too is the efficient cause. We have a twofold causality here. The human will freely responds to the supernatural movement of grace, thus rendering the act meritorious. Now, this friendship with God is also in some way an effect of charity. Thomas here cites Augustine, who said that charity is a virtue, which, when our affections are perfectly ordered, unites us to God. For by this charity, we love God. The point here I want to note is that Thomas speaks of this perfect ordering, which, also, which he, as I say, he takes from Augustine. And he expands upon this perfect ordering calling it an infinite effect. The justification or righteousness of man makes possible his union with God, a union which begins here on earth but is perfected in heaven. Charity not only orders my affections, but affects a broader righteousness, ordering all aspects of my being and relations. Now, use too, we know, orders a person to another implying equality, proportion, and due. And so we can see here something of the seeds of this conformity between use and charity. But we need to develop these, and these are developed, as I say, primarily in Thomas's discussion on the precepts of charity. So a little transitioning here and trying to develop a few more of these connections between use and charity. And here I'm going to go where Thomas goes, to the Synoptic Gospels. In each of the Synoptic Gospels, we have the story of an expert of the law, a lawyer, I don't know if he was a canon lawyer or not, interrogating Christ as to the greatest commandments of the law. Christ responds that the greatest commandment are those which prescribe love of God and love of neighbor. Now, if we assume that law and commandments imply something of justice, then this passage offers insight into a conformity of some sort between use as the object of justice and charity. Now, one of Thomas's clearest statements regarding this conformity, I would say, comes from the Secunda Secunda question 44, where he speaks of the precepts of charity. The discussion begins with the restatement of the general principle applicable to any law. A precept implies a notion of something due, use. The specific precepts of charity to which the question is addressed command a person to render the due of charity first to God and then to one's neighbor, with the end being union with God. Thomas further illuminates the notion of order which he had developed again earlier in other questions of the Secunda Secunde when he was speaking specifically of the theological virtue of charity. Here I would reference question 26 and also correspondingly in De Caritate, question nine. Charity in itself affects in a person an order, a righteousness within himself. But this internal ordering, is an effect of a twofold external ordering of man to others, which is caused by God by means of these two commandments. This primary notion of order consists in the ordering of the two great precepts. Love of God is first, 
He is the principal object of charity. All other loves are good insofar as they are ordered to this first object. Our love of neighbor follows, but it is not solely for our own good, nor even for the good of our neighbor, but for the ultimate good of, for the sake of God. Therefore, we see this ordering within these precepts. They reveal that the love of God, Thomas says, is the end to which the love of our neighbor is directed. This proper ordering elevates our love of neighbor to a kind of participation, Thomas says, in God's charity. Now, here we have to avoid something of a danger. The ordering of charity could be seen as a conflation of use and charity. So here we need to make sure we also maintain a distinction between use and charity. Some tending in this direction often go back to the scriptures. Father Sherwin made reference to some of these points himself, but here I'm referencing a couple of, um, I would say, erroneous interpretations. They can have problematic conclusions. One, Joseph Fletcher, he defines justice as love distributed, nothing else. Another, Timothy Jackson, he gives a more subtle argument. He first sets up agape over justice, but as he develops the argument, he leans more towards an identification of the two. He speaks of biblical righteousness, and he says basically he really leans toward identifying this justice, sedeka, with charity. He says basically the more you look at the scripture, the more you end up to have Love and justice coalesce without remainder. Now, interestingly, Simone Weil argues similarly. She adds her voice to the discussion, but she focuses more on the practical error, and I think that's the concern here, is this practical error, which I would call maximalism, a maximalist perspective of use and justice. They condemns the sins that human beings commit against others. And she declares that man invented the distinction between justice and charity. She was taking issue with, as I say, these concrete errors of justice. With this, what is this, these maximalist errors? A person gives food or clothing to someone in need. The giver calls it charity intending a formal act of virtue of charity. I was charitable, I have charity, and not merely a beneficent act. In this specific case, the object of the beneficent act defines it actually as an act of justice and not charity per se, since the agent merely bestowed upon the other that which was their due. Church actually rejected this error of maximalism, the Second Vatican Council, in the document Apostolicam Actuositatem, on the apostolate of the lady. And it spoke of and the essential demands of charitable acts and justice, noting that one must ensure that, quote, the demands of justice be satisfied, lest the giving of what is due in justice be represented as the offering of a charitable gift. Sometimes we like to think ourselves charitable when we're merely doing what is required by justice. 
Now, hopefully our giving injustice is formed by this charity, but it is not necessarily so. Now, I would say that Thomas's teaching helps us to avoid, avoid any hint of maximalism or conflation between either the virtues of justice and charity or between use and charity. His refined treatment maintains the proper identity of each term despite similarities. Now here we're speaking, of course, of the human person and not of God, whereby we have the absolute simplicity and they are on one. Thomas says justice and charity both perfect the will. But a virtue is specified not by its subject, but by its object. So justice and charity are both in the will. There we have similarity. But even as to the object, there's a problem of a conflation. Why? Because use, justice, renders the property to the other, the object in some way. There's something of an object there. Whereas charity, defined as friendship, also regards the other. So the question here is, what is the distinction then? Since both are in the will and both pertain to the other in some way. Thomas gives two simple answers to this. First, Although both charity and justice imply the other, the object of justice is use, is this right? And that implies distinction between the agent and the other to whom something is owed. While the proper object of charity is union, union with the beloved. Secondly, Thomas says that since both charity and justice require the other, the distinction also must be made sub ratione, on the level of reason. And here he makes the distinction as to justice being a legal due, whereas charity is a moral due. Justice pertains to the works done to the other under the aspect of a legal due. Whereas moral virtue, specifically that of charity, and here he's specifically speaking of friendship, that friendship with God and friendship with others, considers the other according to the ratione of a moral debt and not a strictly legal debt. Well, what about that paradox, though? Precepts that command me to love. Now, due to limited space, I'm going to set aside the first precept of love of God because that's formally religion. I want to address the second precept, love of neighbor. Here, Thomas actually acknowledges the paradox himself in question 44, article 1 of the Secunda Secunde. And he asks whether it is proper to have a precept commanding charity. Would not a command to love negate the will's freedom and therefore cancel merit? and the true meaning of love as charity. Thomas, of course, answers in the negative. He sees no impediment, no problem with God commanding rational beings to love their neighbor. Nor does he believe that a precept, specifically that of charity, opposes liberty. And he gives three basic arguments here that I would briefly note. First, he says, a command cannot be fulfilled except by one's own will. The will must be involved. In his objector's mouth, he had placed the words of St. Paul, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The implication being that spirit and freedom are contrary to command. Thomas dismisses this objection. He says it misinterprets the spirit's role in bringing freedom through the law. 
His second argument is rather simple. He begins with the premise that precepts are given about acts of virtue. Virtues are developed by free acts. Therefore, precepts necessarily are in accord with freedom. Thirdly, as noted above in the definition of charity, the theological virtue has a twofold causality, the Holy Spirit and the will. Thomas argues in De Caritate that although the Holy Spirit inclines the powers of the will towards the good object, they tend not as if by force, but spontaneously. Therefore, the precept of charity in no way limits freedom. Now, Thomas does note man's freedom could be limited if he were to obey solely out of fear, but that would indicate a lack of virtue. Now, here I'm going to shift, and I'm going to turn to Soren Kierkegaard. Now, why Soren Kierkegaard? Well, he's not formally a Thomist, but I would argue that he develops some of these points without contradiction to Aquinas. And this is from his works of love. And he specifically addresses the precepts, freedom, due, and something of stability, which Thomas argues some stability relates in some way to use. Kierkegaard begins by defining love with reference to St. Paul. It is a fulfilling of the law, the sum of the commandments. As a universal requirement, thou shalt, commanding us to love one's neighbor, differs from philia and eros, the other types of love. Love's universal commandment, universal requirement as agape, in some way limits my freedom to choose whom I will love. Kierkegaard makes this statement, quote, only when it is a duty to love, only then is love eternally secured against every change, eternally made free in blessed independence, eternally and happily secured against despair. He says the commandment frees us from the vicissitudes of philia and eros. These other loves, he says, have to be tested. Charity needs no test. It is concrete and absolute. The duty to love secures charity's freedom, gives it stability, defends it against envy, jealousy, jealousy and fickleness. By precluding every other question, Kierkegaard argues, the command defends something of a stability which is required for use. Now, this stability of a universal command, Kierkegaard argues, has an indeterminate element still that persists. Each day we encounter a variety of neighbors with differing needs. To fulfill the command, I have to prudently determine the specific matter of how to establish use in this specific situation. Law defines what I must do, but I have to apply the law in particular situations, a reference that Father Legg made to Thomas Aquinas and his teaching on the natural law. The absoluteness of the law does not preclude an indeterminate element. And this would relate in some way to this subjective element of use. Also a Christological element. In each indeterminate moment before the various needs of my various neighbors, 
God serves as a guide to charity and to infuse justice. Christ, the fulfillment of the law, by commanding me to love as he did, protects me from error regarding the objective and subjective, or the subjective indeterminate element. Imitation of Christ enables me to properly interpret the law in this particular situation and gives something of an assurity of the possibility of fulfilling the law of charity. Now, I'm going to skip a section just as to who is my neighbor. We know that Christ, and just skip to in terms of in the, um, the Sermon on the Mount where Christ says, also my enemy is my neighbor. But the point here is that in, discuss, in this discussion of who is my neighbor, Christ connects the command with the notion of righteousness that is attained by those who, who fulfill the demands of use. Joachim Jeremiah speaks of this regarding Christ's choice of words as to who is my neighbor. He says, Christ forces the scribe to shift his perspective. Why? Because Christ doesn't say, who was the Samaritan's neighbor? He says, which of these three men responding to the Samaritan was a neighbor? There's a subtle shift here that gives something of an objectivity. Regardless of who the three men were, there was an objective use due to that man. As I say, I'm not, I can't go into that too much, but the point here would be that we see here um, something of this demand and something of this objectivity, but also something of this unlimited demand because I must give to all of my neighbors. Kierkegaard develops the nuances of this notion of an unlimited demand, and he speaks of the concept of debt inherent in the command of love of neighbor. Any specific command is infinite because love is infinite. I can always love more. Anyone that I love, when I do love, I'm always not loving someone else. There's always someone else I can love. And because my love is human, it will always fall short. I owe this love to my neighbor until my last dying death, dying breath, which also has something of this infinitude. Kierkegaard uses an image here to illustrate something of his meaning. He speaks of the law as a sketch. Perfect love is the completion, the masterpiece. Our individual acts of love while here on earth are incomplete. But like the sketch, they are drawn together into one complete work, the masterpiece. And both are completed by one and the same artist, me. The indeterminate element does not contradict what is necessary for arriving at the definitive masterpiece. Now, this definitive masterpiece regards, requires one further step, and here I shift to my last argument. The conformity of use and charity, as I noted at the beginning, I believe requires reference to Thomas's teaching on epikeia as a perfection of justice and use, and wisdom as the gift of the Holy Spirit related to charity. A few steps in this argument. I'm going to pass quickly through several steps. First step is a return to Aristotle's discussion of happiness. In the final book of the Nicomachean Ethics, 
Aristotle first discusses pleasure, subtly shifts to happiness, and finally to the question of the greatest happiness. We know the arguments if you've read Aquinas. Thomas addresses these in his commentary on the ethics as well as in the, primus, the first five questions of the Primus Cunde. Aristotle and Aquinas both agree the greatest happiness requires the greatest virtue, which in turn corresponds to the highest operation. In man, this corresponds to the highest act of the intellect, which is contemplation, and contemplation of the highest truth, which is wisdom. A supportive argument for this conclusion that comes from Aristotle is that of self-sufficiency. The greatest things have less need of other things. Example, man's highest operation, operations are of a rational soul, but that rational soul is connected with a body and the body requires lesser things like food and drink. Even the virtuous just man, Aristotle argues, requires another person because I have to give this justice to another. I cannot be just in myself without others. I need something else. I need the assistance of other men to be just. Even a head of state cannot fulfill his obligation to defend his citizens without soldiers. However, the wise man contemplating wisdom is self-sufficient, requiring nothing more and seeking nothing more since wisdom is loved in itself. So wisdom surpasses moral virtue, but I cannot arrive at this wisdom without moral virtue. Man is not born virtuous, thus Aristotle and Aquinas both argue that he requires laws, which properly speaking proceed from wise lawmakers. We've already addressed some of those issues. We know that all lawmakers are not wise, but we're speaking of the ideal. Even a good law, which commands just acts, can be misinterpreted or applied in an unjust manner. Thus, following Aristotle, Aquinas speaks of the virtue of epikeia as a type of justice in general, which perfects justice. The judge or the superior or the father who can apply the law specifically to this action in a way where it hits the core but applied in a different way to another child, thinking even in the family. The law is applied, but Epikeia takes that law and applies it as specifically needed in this situation. As a type of justice, Epikeia has use as its object in some way. But Aristotle specifies that Epikeia is not, not merely about what is use according to the law. It's a higher use what he calls a rectification of what is legally just. Thus, Thomas identifies the object of epikeia as equitas, equity. Now, this helps us to avoid a rigid interpretation of law. Epikeia, Thomas writes, does not ignore that which is simply just, eustem, but rather that which is just, Eustem, as established by law. It doesn't ignore it. It still has to uphold something of the law. What is the implication? Eustem, interpreted as letter of the law, may actually destroy 
that use to which is properly due to this person. That proper use what is right in this specific case. A law may be a true law established by proper authority, not contradicting eternal law or natural law. But it may while it may cause harm and injustice if not interpreted properly according to the mind of the lawgiver. Therefore, there is a not higher virtue. Now, if Epikia perfects justice, where does charity play in? Well, without charity, the rectification of the virtue and its object remains at the level of a social or an acquired virtue. At this point, another aspect of Thomas's teaching on the precept of charity introduces an argument for how charity perfects use and justice and epikeia, further developing this whole question of conformity. In his discussion on the order of charity in the Summa Theologiae, question 26, article 7, Thomas makes the following statement. It pertains to charity to will to preserve God's justice. Thomas makes this statement, he's speaking of human charity, and the implication being that human charity fulfills the precept and thus establishes use but not merely according to human justice, nor, not, nor merely according to Epikeia. God, as supreme lawgiver, gave a perfect law to man in these two precepts, commanding charity as the greatest act of virtue. Christ further specifies, specifies the mode of charity as loving God with our whole heart. The order of charity, which we noted above, primarily as love of God and properly ordering all other loves, in some way establishes here on earth a shadow of God's justice, which is perfectly reflected among the saints in heaven. Christ reigns as king, lawgiver. His mother is queen. All the other saints share in this happiness and union with God, taking their place ordered according to the degrees of their merit. Charity, therefore, preserves God just, God's justice, not only by ordering man towards God and towards his neighbor, but also in her role, as Father Sherwin also indicated, as form of all the virtues. Charity has union with God as her object, and by commanding all the other virtues, which aim at secondary ends, she orders them according to God's justice to the primary end of everlasting happiness. Thus, Thomas can claim that charity, quote, conceives within herself the acts of other virtues, and therefore is rightly called mother, form, the end of other virtues. So on the one hand, charity is stretched to the limits of divine justice, since she wills to preserve God's justice. But on the other hand, as form of all the virtues, she pervades the realms of the earth, directing the social virtue of justice, governing the good of the state, or of the church, to heaven. Though this acquired virtue of justice may be true virtue aimed at use, both virtue and its object remain imperfect without charity, referring them to the final and perfect end. Um, another note, Thomas explicitly identifies charity as the proper end of the Decalogue and its precepts, which command one to render use to God and to neighbor. 
Following the commands of God, one fulfills the commands of charity as mother and form. Charity establishes this use in the soul. She justifies the soul, ultimately ordering it to God as union. Now, returning to Kierkegaard's image of the imperfect sketch, we can argue that the final masterpiece, where one finds perfect conformity between charity and use, one will also find the gift of wisdom, which perfects charity. It's already noted that the intellectual virtue of wisdom raises us to contemplation of the highest truth as an intellectual virtue. It sets in order that which the man judges according to human reason. But despite its excellence, human wisdom as a virtue is insufficient because man must acquire knowledge of the highest cause as a Trinitarian God who is sapiens simpliciter, who judges and orders all things according to the divine rule. Again, as Father Legg already referenced. This gift enables man to know God as highest cause and wisdom, specifically enabling him to judge rightly about divine things, since these must be judged according to divine truth. Restated with reference to causality, Thomas says, the gift of wisdom implies a certain rectitude of judgment in accord with divine reason. Due to a perfect use of reason and co-naturality. The perfect use of human reason for judging human things corresponds to this intellectual virtue. But according to co-naturality, it pertains to the wisdom as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Man's co-naturality for judgment of divine things is a result of charity, since it is charity that unites us to God. Thomas argues, therefore, that insofar as man is united with God in charity, he acquires the ability to measure according to right judgment, for he judges according to divine laws. And Thomas concludes that wisdom is caused by charity. It is the union with God which reveals to us the mysteries of divine wisdom. But this gift is not so lofty that it dwells only in the mystical realms leaving behind judgments and actions in the world below. Now, Thomas offers further clarification by examining wisdom's contrary, foolishness or dullness of judgment. He says the gift of wisdom guards us against foolishness, apathy in our daily life. When do we call someone a fool? Because he fails to judge rightly with due measure about what he should do or not do here and now. Thomas calls foolishness a dullness of judgment, not only as to earthly things, but especially as to one's final end. It's not that the foolish man fails to judge about worldly things, but rather he becomes so caught up in earthly things that he cannot judge rightly and therefore will not render use to his neighbor. Being unable to render this use according to the law in simple things, he will never attain to epikeia as rectification of judgment. He also fails in charity because charity directs the secondary ends required of justice to their primary end. Failing to unite with God in charity, he will lack the conaturality required to judge all things according to the divine measure. So by way of conclusion... 
In the scriptures, Christ speaks of this foolishness, especially in the example, the parable of the rich man who lost his soul through lack of wisdom and charity by laying up more than sufficient earthly goods. But the scriptures also are replete with just, righteous, charitable men. And here I would make one reference, St. Joseph. Luke's account of Joseph and Mary and the presentation in the temple includes five explicit references to the law. Luke repeats himself so often, you're wondering, what is he trying? Was he a lawyer? (laughs) Reportedly, he was a doctor, but he continually references the law. In the first two lines, he mentions the law of purification contained in the law of Moses. Then he says, Joseph took Jesus to the temple to fulfill the law of the Lord. Finally, the same law of the Lord required the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves. A few lines later, Luke again says that Mary and Joseph did what was customary under the law when they presented the child Jesus and they finished everything required by the law of the Lord, then they returned to Galilee. Now, a few months earlier, Luke had recounted how in spite of Mary's pregnancy, Joseph had followed the Roman law, human law, issued by Caesar Augustus, and taken her with him from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census. Luke leaves no doubt that Joseph was a just man who fulfilled what was required by both divine and human law. But Matthew's gospel offers further insight because he recounts how even earlier when Mary first became pregnant, the just man Joseph, not wishing to turn her over according to the law, divorced her in secret. Joseph went against the law. Rather than presenting an exegetical argument, exegetical argument, pitting one gospel writer against the other, I would say the more valid argument would be that Joseph possesses the perfection of justice, epikeia, and charity. He knew the law as well as many lawyers. He knew he must render to each his proper due. He wisely judged the law, interpreted the human laws with epikeia and more through charity with a co-naturality, which knows something of the mind of the divine lawgiver in order to judge how to fulfill the law and to establish use. I would say Joseph personifies the conformity of use and charity. Thank you.